grows our affections for him and our love for him as we spend time alone with him in the mornings or the evenings or whenever we do. What we're going to look at is Jesus' authority over several different things and the conclusions that we can make about those things and how that should grow our, our awe and our reverence and our love and our commitment to Christ, uh, especially as we meet with him with our Bibles open. We're going to be looking at Jesus and his authority over the human condition physically. We're going to look at Jesus and his authority over the human mind. We're going to look at Jesus and his authority over uh, Satan and demons. We're going to look at Jesus and his authority over death. And we're going to look at Jesus and his authority over future events. And each one of these, we want to look at them and, and help us understand what that means about Jesus and how we can grow in our affections for him. So starting in chapter 8, we're going to be looking at Jesus and his authority over, over the human condition. We'll start with a very short miracle that Jesus performs in the life of Peter's mother-in-law. So we're going to look at verse 14 and 15 in Matthew 8. Jesus arrives at Peter's house and he sees Peter's mother-in-law and she is lying sick in bed with a fever. It's not a, a truly significant event and the scripture doesn't tell us that this is an outstanding, very rare, unusual, very grave event. She's just, she has a fever. And verse 15 helps us understand something about Jesus. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And that's all that's said about it. He touches her hand and the fever leaves her. So we see Jesus' sovereignty over the human condition. Here she is with a fever, evidently not able to do much about it herself. Um, it may pass in time by itself. But we see here that the, the initiating, the triggering event is Jesus touching her hand and the fever is gone. Uh, Matthew keeps this description fairly short. Um, what I want to do is I want to move over to chapter 9 to see something a little more substantial, at least from our perspective. <clears throat> Jesus is encountering a man who is paralyzed at the beginning of chapter 9. Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee and comes to his own city, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Jesus says to him, in verse 6, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. You see again, Jesus' command and his authority, his mastery over the human condition. We're all familiar with this, this passage, this story, this event. Um, so there's, there's not a lot there new for us. But what I want us to see is what this tells us about Jesus. When we're reading and we have our Bibles open, we see something like this. We have to step back. We see the event itself, but it's very helpful for our hearts to step back and say, what does this tell us about Jesus? This tells us that Jesus has sovereignty over, he is the creator, and because he's the creator, he has sovereignty over everything he's created. What he has created here is a man, and the man is paralyzed, and Jesus is able to resolve that. This should grow me in my awe and my amazement and my love for him. There are many, many more situations just within Matthew's gospel. You can probably find multiple examples of things very similar to this, things more similar than this, um, to show that Jesus actually rules over a person's body. And the conclusion we have from that is that he rules over me and my body. He rules over everything. I should grow in my amazement and my love and my commitment to him for that. Something else that's, that's very, very helpful for us to see is that Jesus says that 
He shows us that he has authority over sin. He has authority over sin. And we're going to stay in the same passage to see it. We see it in the middle verses between verses 1 and verse 6. Jesus actually doesn't, um, the first thing Jesus does when he encounters this paralytic is not to heal the guy. He actually approaches him and he says, take courage, comma, son, your sins are forgiven. Notice that. He, he just declares that his sin is forgiven. Again, we, we know this, we're familiar with this passage, but it's good for us to stop and see what Jesus has authority over this. What he has authority over here is a man's liability for sin. Jesus has the authority to take that man's liability from that man and place that upon himself when Jesus goes to the cross. And so what we can conclude from this is that Jesus has, has the authority to remove a man's liability for his sin. And that should sober us as we're sitting there with our Bibles open in the morning. We're reading, we say what Jesus does, and we see that he has actually, in union, in agreement, in unity with the Father in heaven, he has the ability to take a person's liability and their guilt for their sin and transfer it onto himself. And if you're sitting there in the morning with your Bible open and you're a believer in Christ, it's really good to see that, you know, that is exactly what Christ did for me. That liability was, was taken back at the cross, um, and it was applied to me at the time of conversion. But that should grow us in our amazement as we actually see Jesus declare that. Scripture tells us that that's what takes place in the life of a believer. And so we want to see things like that, and we want to grow in our amazement over that. So Scripture tells us that, that Jesus has authority over the human condition. He has authority over the liability for sin and, and sin and its, its, its penalty. But we also see that Jesus has, has authority over the thoughts of the human being. And I chose this passage because we see three different things in this passage. First, we see Jesus healing the man. Second, we see Jesus forgiving the man's sin. But you also see that Jesus actually has sovereignty over the thoughts of a man. When he, he declares that the man's sins are forgiven in verse 2, verse 3 shows us the scribes who are talking to themselves. They're talking among themselves. And they're making the claim that Jesus is blaspheming. And look at what Jesus does in verse 4. It tells us in verse 4 that he knows exactly what they're thinking. This shows us that Jesus has access. He has insight into the thoughts of mankind. And he asks the question that he knows they're thinking, that he knows is in their heart. And he says, why are you thinking evil in your heart? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to, to heal the person. So what we see there is that Jesus has dominion and he has understanding and he has knowledge of our hearts in our minds, what is taking place in our minds. And if you're like me, um, when I'm not doing as well as I could be doing, um, I tend to think sometimes that things are fine if I keep them just in my mind and I don't expose what's taking place in my mind in terms of my words or my actions. Um, but our Lord and our Savior shows us that he knows all of those things, even if we don't verbalize them or make them apparent by what we say and what we do. And so uh, that's a very encouraging thing for us to just be sober before the Lord when we're, when we're worshiping him and we're learning about him when our Bibles are open. So we want to see that. Um, you can see other references in the New Testament, even in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus does this. You might want to just jot down Matthew chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Jesus heals a blind and a mute man, and the scribes and the Pharisees are there again, and they're consoling and counseling amongst themselves and Jesus speaks into their life, knowing exactly what they were thinking and exactly what they were saying in private. 
So that should help us uh, grow in our, our love and our reverence for Jesus as we spend time alone with him. Another area where Jesus reveals his sovereignty and his dominion over things is in his authority over Satan and his, and his demons. So let's back up a few chapters to chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of that chapter. And that's where Jesus is in the, the wilderness, and he's spending 30 days fasting. Um, sorry, 40. Why am I on 30? He was fasting for 40 days. For the people who are going to listen to this on a recording, it's 40 days, not 30. Okay, so he had been fasting for 40 days, and he's hungry. And we know that the, the enemy, the devil, tempts him three times. We see the first one in verse 3, where he, he entices Jesus to command these stones to become bread. We see the second one in verse 6, uh, verse six where he says, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself from the top of the temple and the angels will rescue you. And we see the third temptation in verse um, 9. He says, all of these things I will give you, as he's looking at the perspective of all of the world and all of creation, if you just bow down and worship me. I think we all know that, and we know that at every time, at every occasion, Jesus, like every good Jew, replies with Old Testament scripture, with truth from God's word. But what I want to point out is what takes place in verse 10. Jesus says, go. This exchange is finished. This conversation is over. I have already proven to you that I am sovereign over you. So he commands him to go in verse 10. In verse 11, the devil left him. We see Jesus and his sovereignty over that. The devil doesn't have access. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the place because Jesus commands him otherwise. And he obeys. And so we see Jesus' dominion over the devil we see it again and again and again in Matthew's gospel um, as it relates to Jesus casting out demons. Let's take a look at a couple of them and it will help us understand this. Let's go to um, Matthew chapter 8 where we were. We're going to look at verses 28 to 32. Jesus comes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee into the country of the Gadarenes. Two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could even pass by that way. These men are possessed by very, very strong satanic beings. They cried out saying, and they see Jesus, and they cry out saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? They know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly who he is. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Here's the part we want to focus on. Verse 30, there was a herd of many swine feeding on a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. He said, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. They had no permission to enter into the swine other than Jesus and apart from Jesus. So we see that these are are subject, these demons are subject to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the creator of all things, and angels, both ones that are not fallen and those that are fallen, are created beings. And because you're a created being, I have authority over you, and I grant you the permission that I grant you. And I forbid the things that I forbid, and you can do nothing else. 
So when we're reading our Bibles and we see a story like this, that again, we're, we're probably pretty familiar with it, we just want to step back and say, what does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that there's a, yet another area that he has dominion over, and that he has authority over, and that everything in that area has to obey him. So I should obey him too. I should love him and I should revere him. Last thing I want to look at that helps us understand something about Jesus that that I think is very, very helpful for us in light of as we consider our lives and we consider the things that have taken place in the past week and we're thinking about the things that, that may take place in the future is that Jesus has sovereignty and authority over future events. He has them. He has such authority over them that he can describe them with accuracy and with completeness. So we're going to look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look at several different areas and things in which Jesus describes that are going to come to pass. And this is going to tell us something about how trustworthy Jesus is. If we see that Jesus knows these things that are going to be taking place uh, in his time, he also knows the things that are going to be taking place in our lifetime. And so we can trust him and we can know him. We're going to start in verse 2. Jesus says, uh, the disciples had finished all these things, and he was, he was teaching them. And he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. They knew this, the Passover is coming, but Jesus tells them something that they don't understand is coming. He says, the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Jesus knows exactly what's going to take place in the coming days. He knows exactly. And it's to his own hurt, it's to his own harm, it's to his own detriment when he's on the cross. It's to his own torment and punishment as he's on the cross, as he bears the sin of everybody who would trust him as their Savior. But he knows that it's coming. He knows exactly that the Father had decreed that a day would come where he would hang on that cross. And he knows this, he understands this, and he is following this. And so he tells this to his disciples, even though it's very difficult for them to hear and understand. So what we're going to do now is we're going to jump down to verse 26, uh, verse 21. And uh, Jesus says, um, he's, in the, he's at the Passover supper with the disciples. And in verse 20, he's reclining at the table with the disciples. And he's, he's been speaking with them for a long time. And he says, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. He knows exactly who it is. He knows exactly what it is. Uh, he knows exactly when it is. Um, he doesn't tell us in this verse when it is, but he knows what is going to happen. <laughs> Other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus dismisses Judas and says, go and do what you need to do. Um, Jesus, again, is showing us that he knows exactly what is going to come to pass in his own life. Drop down from verse 21 to verse 31. He's describing all of the events that are going to take place. Um, They sing a hymn. They go out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. And then he quotes Isaiah, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. I'm sorry, that's Zechariah. He quotes Zechariah and says that. Old Testament prophecy. And so again, he's telling the disciples, you will all fall away. And, you know, Peter is here, and Peter is verbose, and he's strong, and he's confident in himself. And we know other gospel accounts, and this one here, he does the same thing. He says, you know, um, I will never fall away from you. And Jesus says to him in verse, um, he says in verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples say the same thing. Um, we know what, what takes place next. Peter's, Jesus tells Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. 
And he does. And so Jesus is telling us that he has sovereignty over human events. And we see that in verse 34. He says, you know, you will, you will deny me before he crows. Three times you will deny me. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus doesn't only describe what's going to take place in his own life. He knows what is going to take place in Peter's life. And if Jesus knows what's going to take place in Peter's life, he absolutely knows what is going to take place in our life. And we can trust him as believers that he is working for the good of a believer, whether it's a, a challenging, difficult situation or it, it's a, a situation which is more of a blessing for us. Um, so when your Bible is open and you're reading things like this, where Jesus is demonstrating to us that he knows what is coming, and, and we, we need to take away from that that he is trustworthy. The only reason why he can do all of this and say all this is that he's God. He has to be God in order to be able to say all of these things. So when you see these things, Jesus' authority over the human condition, his authority over the human mind, his authority over sin and the ability to forgive sin, you see Jesus' authority over coming events, you see Jesus' authority over demons. Um, recognize the events, know the events for what they are, but know them for what they mean about Jesus. And, and hopefully we can use that as our opportunity to grow in our worship and our reverence for Christ and our time alone with him. All right, so this morning we're going to be talking about discipline number three. Is this the, the first time you guys have had discipline number three? Um, and so this kind of builds on what you guys have been learning in disciplines one and two. And if you're rightly applying disciplines one and two, you are well positioned and well equipped to uh, step into other people's lives and um, perform discipline number three. And here this morning, we're going to be specifically talking about the practice of biblical relationships, specifically the one another's. And, you know, the one another's are a tool. Uh, perhaps you've been a Christian for a while and you've heard of the one another's. Perhaps you've even studied the one another's. Um, and the one another's are a tool to survey scripture about uh, how we're to practice biblical relationships. Uh, the power to practice biblical relationships within the local church. And the one another's don't capture everything about how believers relate to one another, but they are an extremely helpful tool in doing so. And so this next part is for those that like numbers um, and how kind of came up with this study on the one another's. Uh, the tiny little phrase one another is a simple adjective pronoun pair. Uh, in my English translation, uh, then ASB, one another shows up 108 times in 101 verses in the New Testament. There are primarily two Greek pronouns that get translated into that English phrase, one another. Some of the 101 verses are simply narrative passages. They just are simply explaining what's going on. Uh, for example, in Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 16, they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. That's actually not what we're trying to get at here. Uh, we want, we, you know, when I said, you know, we're here surveying scripture about what it says, uh, you know, so not every of the one another's is going to be applicable to what we want to try to capture. Uh, we want to look for the, the imperatives, the expectations for believers and our relationships to one another. Uh, there are some one another's that uh, some commands that don't apply. For example, Matthew chapter 24, 10, betray one another, hate one another. Revelation 6.4, slay one another. Those obviously are not the one another's we're trying to uh, live out. 
And, uh, you know, so, you know, when you take out the narrative stuff, you take out some of those others that are not applicable to believers uh, and filter that whole list down into the commands and the expectations relating to believers, we get 39 or 38 different one another's contained in 59 different verses or passages. And there's not a one-to-one correspondence there because some of the one another's are repeated. For example, love one another is repeated 14 different times. So we have 38 different one another's in 59 different verses. They're found in two different gospels, Mark and John. They're found in 16 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. And the vast majority, the vast majority of these one another's are explicit commands or expectations for believers. And the vast majority of these commands and expectations are to be carried out within the local church. Carried out within the local church. So look around this room. Uh, If you're in a small group, the people in your small group, tomorrow, when we gather tomorrow, look around. You know, if you're sitting on one side, look over to the other side. Those people are in your local church. And these are the people that we're actually to be carrying out these commands with. Those are the expectations uh, when the commands are given. Those are the expectations of the people that we're going to be carrying out those commands with. And my hope and desire is to provide some familiarity with the one another's so that they stand out in scripture so that we can be practicing them more or more effectively within the body. And because this is our local church, uh, we're going to be talking about specifically here at Grace Bible Church. Uh, carrying out these more effectively or practicing them more here within this body of believers, this local church called Grace Bible Church. And my hope uh, that after going through this lesson is that you'll see that the obedient Christian, you, me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church, so here at Grace Bible Church, And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another in the local church. I'll say that again. The obedient Christian must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another in the local church. The one another's are simply a manual. They're, they're essentially a manual for biblical relationships in the local church. And, you know, what, one thing we're not going to do is we're not going to uh, pit against each other passages that talk about believers loving other believers, those relationships, or how believers are to uh, relate to non-believers. Uh, all these passages coexist very nicely and, you know, but what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on believers' relationships with believers within the local church. And, you know, you guys should all have one of these in your handouts. Um, we're going to be referring to this, so we're going to be pulling it out. On this list is a reference of all 38 different one another's and all 59 different passages. They're categorized into six different categories. Uh, love, care, edification, service, humility, and unity. And so we're going to be referring to this as we go out, go through the lesson this morning. And to help us walk through these six different 
categories, we're going to ask six different questions. And these six questions are how to investigate, or how we're going to investigate how God wants us to practice biblical relationships within the local church. And we're going to start off with question number one. How does God want us to practice loving one another? How does God want us to practice loving one another? The primary and single most important one another is love one another. This command stands over and above all the others. It's an umbrella that covers all of the others. All the other one another's flow out of this one. They flow out of a love for one another. And to get us started, let's go to John chapter 13. We're going to be hitting a lot of scripture, so your fingers are probably going to get a little bit tired. Um, We're going to start in John chapter 13, verse 34, 35. Here in this chapter of John, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. He's in the upper room for the Last Supper, and he is literally hours away from going to the cross. In this particular part, Judas has already left, and Jesus provides a new commandment to his disciples, starting in verse 34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. I want you to see that word love. When you read that word, what's one of the first things that kind of comes to mind? Usually one of the first things that I think about is the emotion, the feelings, the warm affections that I have for people that I love, that I care about. Uh, Biblical love includes that. And it's so much more than that. A biblical love is a one that loves the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind, and all of our strength. It's one that loves our neighbor as ourselves. It's a selfless love, a self-giving love. That kind of love is one that transcends our circumstances. I also want you to notice something else about that word love. It's a verb. It's an active verb. This love is a love of action. And in this use of love, that action is directed towards one another. And now Jesus provides this new commandment. It's new because it narrows the focus of that love. These disciples are not simply to have a love of neighbor. That's already been established when Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. And that was referring back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Here, they're to love one another. And the one another's here are the disciples. The 11 disciples, the 12 minus Judas, because he had already left. You disciples, love the disciples. Love one another. Jesus did not give this command to the crowds. He didn't give this command to all those that were following him. He gave this command specifically and intimately to these 11, to the ones that he had spent three years developing these very close and intimate relationships with. And these disciples are to love one another with a love that is modeled after the love that Christ had for them. As Jesus said in verse 34, 
love one another even as I have loved you. Even as I have loved you. So this is the, the way that Christ had loved them is the way they're to love one another. What kind of love did Christ have for them? His love, Christ's love was unconditional. These, the, the, the disciples were not the easiest bunch of guys to love. Jesus' love was humble. The creator, the king of the universe, became a man and spent three years with these guys. Jesus' love was merciful. He did not provide what they deserved. Jesus' love was gracious. He gave to them and privileged them, not based on anything that they had done. Jesus' love was patient. Regardless of what they did or what they said, he was patient with them. Jesus' love was self-giving. Jesus' love was selfless. Jesus' love was sacrificial. Jesus' love was demonstrated at a great cost to himself. And Jesus loved them. And remember, this, the context of this is he's hours before going to the cross. He loved them when they didn't love him. And he loved them when he knew they were about to abandon him. When he was arrested, they all left. And yet he, he loved them and he, he, he knew they were going to do this. And the disciples were to have that kind of love for one another. And the results of that love for one another, verse 35, by this, by this love that you have for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. All men will know that these, follow, that these disciples are followers of Christ. Their love for one another provides a witness, provides a testimony to the world. The world doesn't get that kind of love. This new commandment that Jesus gives to the disciples is a commandment for us. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to have close, intimate relationships with fellow believers for the purpose of pouring out our love on them. And our love for one another will stand as a witness to an unbelieving world of who we follow. Our love for one another will draw attention to Christ. The love that we have and show and demonstrate for one another magnifies the one whom we follow. This love, this kind of love, is the outstanding and the essential mark of the Christian. Another example of love one another is found in 1 John. So if you flip on over there, 1 John chapter 3. Verse 11 specifically. Here, the Apostle John is writing to the local churches. Uh, the local church is likely around Ephesus. And I'm going to start reading in verse 10 and go down through verse 23. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. 
And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with, de- or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know this, that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we, we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Verse 10, he who does not love his brother is not of God. Our love for one another is evidence that we're believers. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Again, our love for the brethren is evidence that we've been saved. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, Christ being the supreme example. The love that Christ displayed by laying down his own life is to be an example for us. Verse 17, we love one another by providing for the worldly needs of our brethren. Verse 18, we, we love indeed in truth. Our, our love has an action that is supported by God's word. Verse 23, and we love one another just as he commanded us. Another love one another example is found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. So on the, probably on the next page. I'm going to read, start reading in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might believe through him, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 10, he loved us when we what didn't love him we actually hated him our hearts were rebellious against him and god poured out his love on us <coughs> and god sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins god sent the perfect one the sinless one from heaven to earth to become human to be born and live in a fallen sinful world He sent him to be the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Not his sins, not everyone's sins, our sins, his people, his church. He bore the wrath 
the punishment for sins for those who did not love him. And verse 11 says, if God so loved us, if God so loved us when we hated him, we also ought to love one another with that kind of love. You know, God's love was selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, merciful, gracious, enduring, costly. It provided for our greatest need, which, is, which was reconciliation. Doing that for which we were helpless to do. In light of all of that, what should my love for one another look like? There are needs. There, there needs to be others in my life here at Grace Bible Church, within this local church. There needs to be others in my life. I need to know what's going on in their lives so that I know how to love them, how I can love them. I need to be always looking for ways to love them earnestly, constantly, consistently. My love needs to be selfless with godly motivations. And everything that I have, my, my time, my knowledge, my energy, my possessions, those are all the Lord's. And they need to be available to love one another. And as we go about loving one another, it may be costly. It may be inconvenient. It may be a sacrifice. But these are all things that we have that God has provided in ways that we can then love one another. So this is how God wants us to practice loving one another here at Grace Bible Church. Uh, number two, how does God want us to practice caring for one another? And so on this sheet, I'll just call it the reference sheet, under care, we have care for one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, comfort one another, pray for one another. We're going to tackle care for one another found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So turn on over to 1 Corinthians 12. First Corinthians 12 verse 25. And here the context for, for this verse is really all of chapter 12. And Paul here is addressing the local church found in Corinth. Paul is dealing with division in the body of the Corinthian church. They had factions over who was baptized by who. And now Paul is addressing division within the church because of spiritual gifts. The focus Paul has here in this chapter is on the unity of believers as one body in Christ. Not as individuals, but unified for the common good. The different members of the body are necessary. And I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 12. And work my way up to um, verse 26. So start reading in verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, for all the members of the body, or and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole hearing, if the whole were hearing, 
where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow much more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Verse 24 says, But God so composed the body. God was composing the body, the local church, so that there would be no division within it. Each mem- so that each member would have the same care for one another. Paul is contrasting the division that can exist within the body with the care for one another. And Paul provides two examples in verse 26 of this unity that we have, uh, suffering and rejoicing. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. God puts different members in the body with different skills and resources and capacities for the purpose of providing the same care for the body. God doesn't want division or factions. He wants them unified in caring for those that are suffering and unified around those, uh, unified around rejoicing for those that are rejoicing. And when we, you know, think of the the time that the Lord has our body in right now, there's a lot of suffering that's going on. Um, we've had that now for a couple of years, um, where the Lord has provided circumstances where there is great suffering, and. And is it not true that when one member suffers, we all suffer? I think of Jacob Pantla, who had to go back in for surgery on Thursday, um, and he's likely in a bit of pain because of the way that they actually had to cut through the muscle to get to it. Um, and, and as he's been fighting this fight now for eight months, um, and that's hard. And do, do we not all feel that when we hear... Um, and you know, read what's been going on with him. We feel that, um, and we all suffer. And at the same time, you know, when we we love to have, uh, we love to introduce uh, when people get married and when babies are born and all those kinds of different things. Those are exciting events. Those are times when we get to rejoice in these things. And, you know, we specifically call attention to those so that we can all rejoice with those in our body and we can rejoice corporately with that. And so we get to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We get to suffer with those who are suffering. Another way that God wants us to practice caring for one another is to bear one another's burdens. And this is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. (coughs) 
So Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Here Paul wrote to the local church in Galatia, and I'm going to start reading in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This this is dealing with sin and temptation and restoration. And to bear just mean it's carrying something burdensome. And it's carrying something burdensome with endurance. This would not be simply just being able to pick up something heavy. This would be picking up something heavy and having to walk a long ways with it to where it actually requires endurance to continue carrying it. And a burden here, it, it simply means a heavy load that's difficult to lift or carry. Um, believers in the local church are being called to walk with a fellow believer and help them bear that burden of sin and temptation. And to bear that burden of sin and temptation ultimately unto repentance and restoration. Sin and temptation are significant burdens. And we all need help. We need help from one another. And this is not just a pastor's job. This is the job of all of us. One of my former pastors said, you're either bearing a burden or helping someone bear theirs. Those are, those are the different ways that we can practice caring for one another. One another. Uh, we're going to ask the next question, number three. How does God want us to practice edifying one another? So if we go to our reference sheet here under edification, we have build up one another, admonish one another, speak truth to one another, Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Encourage one another. Seek after that which is good for one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The first one we're going to tackle here is build up one another, found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Thess 5, 11. Paul wrote this letter to the local church found in Thessalonica. And I'm going to start reading in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to times, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and there will and they will not escape but you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief for you are all sons of light and sons of day we are we are not of the night nor of darkness so then let us not sleep as others do but let us be alert and sober for those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night but since we are of the day let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. 
Therefore, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. This passage is dealing with the day of the Lord. Uh, these Thessalonians had questions about when that was going to take place or uh, whether it had taken place and, and those different things. And, you know, the, the uh, and so Paul, in answering these, trying to answer these questions, Paul proceeds to encourage them and build them up. He explains truth about believers here in this passage. Believers are not in darkness. They're not overtaken. They're not destined for wrath. They're destined for salvation in Christ. They are sons of the light, sons of the day. Therefore, since for unbelievers there's wrath, and since for believers there's no wrath, encourage and build up one another. And Paul was building up these believers with truth. He was doing the very thing that he was encouraging them to do. You know, building them up and encouraging them. Paul, you know, in answering their questions in the way he did, he was actually building them up and encouraging them with this truth. This, this kind of building up and encouraging one another, this assumes that we're actually in close communication with believers. This assumes that we're spending time with them so that we can build them up, so that we can encourage them, so that we know what ways they need built up, what ways they would need encouraged. Uh, another way that God wants us to practice edifying one another is to admonish one another. Found in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. So over to Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. The word here for admonish, some translations may say instruct, is the word nutheteo, which may seem familiar to, as many of you may have heard of, nuthetic counseling or biblical counseling. It simply means to counsel, this word admonish simply means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. It, it means to admonish, to warn, to instruct. But this is not simply an instruction for knowledge's sake. This is an instruction with the purpose of having someone avoid or cease doing something. And if we're going to bring something to someone that they need to avoid or cease, it needs to be with our Bibles open, saying this is actually what God's Word says. This is how you are uh, sinning, and you need to avoid this, or you need to cease from this. This is not about a preference that I think you know I, I wouldn't do that. This is this is with our Bibles open. This, that's the kind of admonishment that we're talking about here. This is lovingly going to your brother or sister and warning them about something that needs to cease, something that they need to avoid, and we're to do this with one another. Paul here is affirming that these Roman believers, I don't know if you uh, saw this in verse 14, uh, also able, and able also to admonish one another. These Roman believers are able to do this with one another. This, this admonishment, this is not necessarily something that would be our favorite thing to do, uh, something that we may not think we're capable of doing, but God's word says that we're able. Uh, it doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. If, if you're a believer and you're 
you know, you are, if you are a believer, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and God's Spirit loves to take God's word and apply it to our hearts and to others' hearts, and you're, you're well equipped to be able to step into somebody else's life to do this. And, and all believers bear the responsibility to admonish one another. This is not just the elders or the deacons. All of us, with one another, we are commanded to do this. And Paul here affirms that not only are we commanded to do this, but we uh, believers are equipped to do so. And we are. There's a, also an implication here that if we're commanded to do this and we're equipped to do this with other believers, with one another, that likely means that we're going to be admonished as well. So our hearts need to be prepared to be admonished, to have someone step into our lives and and we need to have soft hearts ready to listen, ready to hear for that. Likely, none of us really want to be confrontational. We like to be encouraging. But if one of our brothers or sisters is actually in sin, what is the most loving thing that we can do? What's the most loving thing that we can do for them? We can shed light on it lovingly. We can expose it. And we can lovingly admonish them for it. And, you know, that's uh, the Matthew 18 process, step one. That, that's just going on, right? Um, brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister. You know, those things are just going on. Um, and it's not in the context of everybody. This is like, this is one-on-one. This is sitting down and shedding light on someone's sin. And it's God's kindness and graciousness that, uh, in the, for example, in the Matthew 18 process, the step one is so small. That's God's kindness that it's not... If every one of us had all of our sins broadcast from the front to the entire body, that would be hard. It's God's kindness that he exposes our sin in in tiny little ways like that because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Um, And that is the the goal here is repentance and restoration. Those are ways that God wants us to practice edifying one another. The next question is, number four, how does God want us to practice being humble with one another? Going back to our handout here, under humility, we have give preference to one another. Be subject to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Confess your sins to one another. Be humble toward one another. We're going to take a look at give preference to one another, found in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. So flip a couple pages over to the left. And Paul is here. You know, we've been in the book of Romans in our corporate worship. Paul's writing to the church of Rome, the local church of Rome. And this section of Romans has approximately, or has some 25 exhortations for believers. This section that our verse is in specifically deals with family relationships, specifically the family of God. And we find in Romans 12, 10, the uh, second part of this, give preference to one another in honor. Some translations may say outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, this give preference or outdo means to do with eagerness, do exceedingly, lead the way, go before, to proceed, precede. To prefer. And honor you know, means what you think it means. High respect, high esteem. 
All of this is showing genuine appreciation and admiration for fellow believers by putting them first. We're able to go before so that we can give honor, to go before, proactively go before. Showing genuine appreciation and admiration for one another in the family of God. We're, we're quick to show respect. We're quick to show that admiration. We're, we're quick to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. We're quick to show genuine love by not being jealous or envious. Why? Why would? Why, what would prohibit? What would keep us from doing this or doing it well? Be our own sin, our own pride. It takes humility to get outside of ourselves at all, let alone to see others and put them first. But that's what we're being called here is to actually put them first, to go before, not think of them and think of us and it's like, and thinking myself and I wish I could have been first. You know, it, it's, it's just getting out there and just training ourselves to be quick to do that, um, to go first. Another way that God wants us to practice being humble with one another is to confess our sins to one another found in James chapter 5, verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Confess your sins to one another. Confess simply means to make an admission of wrongdoing or sin. It's to admit it. We're commanded to continually do this with one another. Now, I want to see the, you raise your, who, who, who's, uh, which of you is this, is this your favorite activity to do? <laughs> uh, this is not something we desire to do. Sin wants to stay hidden. Sin wants to stay private and sin wants to stay secret. And you mix some of that in with our pride. We often run away from confession. God wants my sin, and he wants your sin exposed. And he wants it dealt with in the loving fellowship of other believers. And we need to have, and we need to be in close, intimate relationships to humbly practice this one another. To have small groups that we are intimately familiar with so that we, so that we can confess our sins with one another, to one another. Uh, number five, how does God want us to practice serving one another? How does God want us to practice serving one another? So under service, we have serve one another, be hospitable to one another, and wash one another's feet. We're going to start with serve one another, found in 1 Peter chapter 4. So a few pages to the right. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
out of a fervent love for one another, we are to serve. And here, that word serve, diakoneo, which is where we actually get the word deacon. This is a personal service, a discharge of loving service. In the Greek culture, this word had the meaning meaning of waiting tables. And for the Greeks, service was looked down upon as undignified. A common saying to the Greek culture was, we are born to rule, not to serve. So this is countercultural, what Paul is commanding us to do with one another here. What he was commanding them to do there uh, in their culture. And our service to one another is out of a love for one another. And it can be very humbling. And it can be you know, very exhausting. I, I know as people, you know, a lot of times we can get ready to serve somebody when it's just a, a quick one hour thing here or one hour thing there or, or something short period of time. It's a lot harder when it's something that has to be done for a long period of time. Um, and those things can be very exhausting physically, emotionally. And uh, as we're pouring ourselves out serving one another, we're serving in verse 11 by the strength which God supplies. So even though we may be exhausting ourselves in serving one another, God is the one supplying our strength to do so. And we can trust him that he will continue to supply that strength because, and the, so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the end. That's the, the reason that we're actually doing that. Are we doing it to serve the person we're serving? Absolutely. But the, the end that we're doing that is not just so that that person gets served. It's so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. Our loving service to and for one another is all about the other person. It's all about the other person so that God gets all that glory. Another way that God wants us to practice serving one another is by washing one another's feet, found in John chapter 13, verse 14. So flipping back over to John chapter 13. So again, we're back here uh, in the context is Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. and But this is before Judas left. So Judas is actually here. All 12 of them are present. And I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? This is Peter saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him and said, Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, I do not wash you. You have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, but not, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. 
For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. In Israel, dirt and dust was everywhere, and it was not uncommon for that dust to be an inch thick. And when it rained, what do you guys think an inch thick of dust would turn into? A lot of mud. And so whether it was dust or mud and wearing only sandals, their feet would get really dirty. And at the entrance of every Jewish home, there would have been large pots of water so that guests and the people who lived there could wash their feet off before they went in. And for a slave, this was the most menial task that they were given, to wash the feet of all the guests who entered the home. And when Jesus and his disciples arrived at the upper room, there was no slave. One of the 12 should have offered to do it, but the 12 were actually too busy arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Um, Tells us that in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. So they were too busy being selfish, thinking about their perceived greatness to see the humble service that needed to be done. And so Jesus, the God of the universe, the King, the Messiah, who had already humbled himself by coming to earth to take on flesh, took another step even lower. And Jesus, by his example, displayed incredible, humble service to the disciples that they were to do in a like manner with each other. We're to get low and follow our Lord's example of humble service to one another. And we don't exactly have a dirty feet problem nowadays. Some of you might, but... um, But there are plenty of menial tasks, humble tasks that that need to be done and that we can do for one another. Those are ways that God wants us to practice serving one another. Number six, how does God want us to practice being unified with one another? On our reference sheet here, under unity, be devoted to one another. Let us not judge one another. Be of the same mind as one another. Accept one another. Greet one another. Wait for one another. Do not consume one another. Let us not challenge one another. Let us not envy one another. Show tolerance for one another. Bear with one another. Do not lie to one another. Live in peace with one another. Do not speak against one another. Do not complain against one another. Fellowship with one another. We're going to tackle be devoted to one another found in Romans chapter 12 verse 10 so we're going to go back to Romans and actually back to the same verse we were in we're just going to do the first part of it now Romans chapter 12 verse 10 be devoted to one another in brotherly love Some translations may say love instead of devoted, but this isn't the same love that we've been talking about. 
The, the Greek word behind devoted here means the natural love that occurs within the family, the kindred love, the warm affections. It could also be translated lovingly loving. And uh, the Greek word behind brotherly love is a word that we all know, Philadelphia. And that word literally means the love of brother or sister, a blood relative. Uh, this is the affection, the tender, kind, caring, concerned, warm feelings and affections we have for family members, for blood relatives. And if you put it all together, you might get be lovingly loving with one another with loving love. That's a lot of love, man. Um, believers are to be devoted to each other. Having affections and love for each other that are reserved for blood relatives, for immediate family, brothers to sisters, parents, children. And here, Paul applies that family love to Christians. Believers are brothers and sisters with one another in Christ. We have one father and we are children. We are all children that have been adopted into God's family. There, there are things that I'll do and say with a close family member that I wouldn't simply just say or do with a friend. And yet, we have such a unity in the family of Christ, uh, this family unit that God has ordained, um, that we are, we are that close. That you know, Husbands, wives, parents, children, brothers, sisters. There's a relationship that we have with one another here in the local church that we don't have uh, with... Um, other circles of people that were around. And we're commanded to have those kind of warm, familial affections for one another here in our local body called Grace Bible Church. Another way that God wants us to practice being unified with one another is to not let us not judge one another. Found in Romans 14, verse 13. And... Uh, the context for uh, this chapter or for this verse is really all of chapter 14. Chapter 14 is dealing with conscience. And I'm actually going to start re reading in verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another to his own master? He stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord and he who eats does so for the Lord for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be, both, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, "As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God." So then, each of us, each one of us, will give an account of himself to God. 
verse 13, therefore, because of all of that, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. There are two issues that Paul's addressing here in this chapter. One is dealing with food, and the other is dealing with certain days being regarded as more important than others. There's weak believers, there's strong believers. The strong believers can have an attitude of contemptuous superiority, and the weak believers can have an attitude of self-righteousness. And Paul provides the command not to judge one another. These are issues of, in the area of Christian liberty, in the area of Christian practice. These areas that they're discussing, they're neither commanded uh, nor forbidden by Scripture. They are personal preference. They are historic tradition, not doctrinal or moral compromise. And God has accepted both the strong and the weak believer. And if God himself doesn't make an issue of such things, what right do his children have to make, or have the right to do so? What right do the children have to make an issue of those things? This doesn't mean that we don't talk about our preferences. I'm sure everybody in this room has an opinion on everything. Um, but, but we don't hold our preferences as though they were principles. We don't judge our brothers and sisters that don't hold the same preferences. We don't regard them and hold them with contempt. I know some preferences can become very, very close to a principle in some people's minds, and they can be convicted of that. We can't go to others if it's not explicitly stated in Scripture and uh, um, judge them for not doing the same. That's another way that we can practice being unified with one another is to not judge each other's preferences. All right, I probably have about two more hours left to go. Um, that's good, right? Uh, so we've investigated six different questions of how God wants us to practice biblical relationships within the local church, specifically at Grace Bible Church. So let me ask a, a few more questions. After having gone through all of this, can one be obedient to Scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one be obedient to scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged into a local church? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged in to a local church? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? So just, you know, coming on, for example, tomorrow. We, we all live in America, and this country is just very consumeristic. And we're impacted by it. We can't get away from it. It affects all of us. And given that, it's very easy to bring that consumeristic view uh, into the church. And it can be common to only focus on what I get out of a relationship a Bible study, or what I get out of a small group, or what I even get out of the worship service. I view how well something is going based solely on what I felt I got out of it. This is a view of relationships within the local church that scripture does not support. The obedient Christian, you and me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers 
And since I'm talking to Grace Bible Church here, fellow believers here at Grace Bible Church, and evidence of those close biblical relationships is going to be the practice of one another's, the one another's with one another. And here at GBC, the, the primary vehicle we, the elders, have established for practicing the, the one another's, uh, these biblical relationships, is small groups. These are intended to be smaller groups of believers, you know, to, to come together to carry out and foster these intimate relationships so that we can know each other better, so that we can have this opportunity to uh, know each other better, so we have the opportunity to then carry out these one another's with each other. Because, you know, when we come together just on the worship service on Sundays, you know, just in the time that we have, there can be, there, there can be really good fellowship that happens right there, but it's not going to be very effective to, you know, with the breadth of what we just covered, you can't do that on a Sunday, just on those two hours that we might get with each other on a Sunday. And so we have to be purposeful to be in each other's lives. Uh, and so that's where the, the primary vehicle we have for doing that, that is going to be with small groups. And, and men, we need to lead our families in carrying out these biblical relationships. Uh, you know, we're, this is where you can take discipline two and discipline three and do that and bring those together. We can uh, take our families and, and help mobilize them to do that. I know I'm very thankful for the way that God has so composed this body. And it's put us in relationship with one another. And I'm, I know I'm very thankful that he has provided so much instruction on how we are to live that Christian life with one another. I'm very thankful for the believers at GBC that I have close relationships with that have practiced these one another's with me and that I've had the opportunity to practice the one another's with them. And if you've been here for any amount of time, I'm sure you've felt similar uh, relationships of people caring for you and practicing these one another's with you and vice versa. And so hopefully I was able to provide some familiarity with one another's if you weren't already familiar with them. Uh, but hopefully they will stand out in scripture more and so that we can be practicing them more effectively uh, with one another, specifically within this body of Grace Bible Church. And so if anyone has any questions, feel free to grab me today, tomorrow, whenever. Um, I'd love to sit and answer any questions that you might have. Uh, and if you don't have anything else, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll be done. Lord, this life that we live, as long as you have us here on this earth, it is to make much of you, Jesus. It is to glorify you and bring uh, honor and glory to your name. Lord, as we live out this life with one another, here within this local church called Grace Bible Church, Lord, this is your church. We are all your sheep. May we care and live and practice uh, these one another's uh, with each other well. Lord, just taking all the breadth of scripture that we've covered and just applying it well. And it's so that you get the glory and so that we get to, to just have our love poured out on each other. Jesus, I pray that this would be a testimony and a witness to this unbelieving world that we live in in so many different ways and that you would be pleased to just save many many, many, many that we would interact with. Jesus, and it's always in your great name we pray. Amen.